Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and as you all turn there, we will be dismissing our children to our uh, children's class, our children's ministry. You guys can make your way back there to meet our leaders there, and they'll help you into the room. And as I said, while they're making their way back there, uh, we'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, We'll be in verses 1 through 10 this week as we're back in this book and uh, continuing to make our way through the book of Hebrews. Well, as we do every week, allow me to read our passage for us, and then we will pause and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I'll begin reading again in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the privilege to be able to gather together this morning under the truth of your word. Every single week that we gather, we want to acknowledge that it is a gift from you. It is a gift of your grace to us, purchased, bought by Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we don't deserve to be gathered here as your people. We don't deserve to have your word in our hands. We don't deserve to hear from you this morning, but yet because of what Christ has done, because his righteous life stands in our place, because he took the wrath we deserved on himself, because he victoriously rose from the grave, because you have, uh, through his finished work, because of his finished work, sent your spirit to dwell in all who trust in Christ. Father, we are uh, able to understand what you have to say to us this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work uh, by the power of your spirit who dwells in us through the transforming truth of your word this morning. 
Father, we need your help for all parts of your word, but especially for passages like this, Father. They can be difficult, but I pray that you would allow us to see the glories of Christ on display, that you would allow us to see your faithful sovereignty on display in these 10 verses, and that we would, in fact, be changed by these truths this morning. And so, Father, as I ask every week, I once again ask for your help. I pray that you would guide my words, allow me to only speak what is true of you, what is true of your word, that no one in this room, including myself, would be led astray this morning, but instead you would lead us into all truth. And we pray this in the glorious, worthy, majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I love passages like this because they are difficult, but they do help us see the depths of the treasures of God's Word. And I believe that as those treasures are unveiled before our eyes, it allows us to see more and more the depths of the grace and the mercy that God has toward us through Jesus Christ. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, it's, as we look at this passage, the, the author of Hebrews is reaching back and, and referencing an Old Testament passage from way back in Genesis chapter 14, or rather, probably if you were reading through the Old Testament, you would see it as a rather insignificant passage in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, it's only uh, four verses. I'll read them for you here at the beginning. We'll, we'll reference these again. But, but this is what the author of Hebrews is referencing. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. Again, it's talking about Abraham here, and it says... After his return from the defeat of Shedder and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now the reason I wanted to go ahead and read that passage now is to let you see just how ordinary it is, right? If you were reading through your Bible, if you're reading through Genesis and you had uh, your small group that evening, your life group that evening, and, and they said, could, could, what if you just share something you read in your daily Bible reading this week that really made an impact on your life and, and helped you see God in a new way and changed you? I don't think any of you would raise your hand and say, man, I read about this Melchizedek guy and it was transformational. I'm a different person today because I read Genesis 14, 17 through 20, right? We just don't interact with a passage like that in this way. We don't, we don't like, uh, you know, have it framed on a wall in some kind of fancy word art, this Melchizedek passage from Genesis 14 and draw inspiration from it. But here's the reality this morning. I think the author of Hebrews would have had it framed on his wall. He sees something here significant, life-changing, right? He sees something here about the glory of God and the faithfulness of God and the, and the person of Jesus Christ. And he, he sees it on display here. So, so what we had the privilege of doing this morning 
It's tracking along with the divinely inspired author of Hebrews and looking at an Old Testament passage with him and get a divinely inspired interpretation of that Old Testament passage. Right? That's a unique opportunity. We don't get that for every Old Testament passage, but we get it for this one. And what it does is reveals to us the, the, what I mentioned at the beginning, that the depths of the treasures of God's Word. And, and my prayer is by the time we finish this morning that we will see how this is life-changing, that we will see how a passage like this matters and how it even helps us understand the world and how God is at work even in this world by seeing the way God was at work in an event like Genesis 14 and how he revealed himself and the glories of Christ even in a passage like that. So it's really important for us to have a biblical worldview and a passage like this helps us do that, right? It helps us see a historical event and we have a divinely inspired author pulling the veil back on that historical event and, and giving us the meaning behind it. So it's, it's as if God is giving us eyes to see how he works in the world. And as I think about this concept of a biblical worldview, I, I was reflecting on it over the past few days and, and realized, you know, ultimately I think a helpful way to think about it maybe is this, this relatively new technology that we call uh, augmented reality, right? So almost all of you have a smartphone and you can pull a smartphone out and there's certain apps you can use. It uses the camera on your phone and you can hold the phone up and view the world in front of you. And there's a representation on your screen of that world. Now what augmented reality can do through technology is it can, it can add things to that image that aren't there, right? That if you're looking with your eyes, you don't see them. But if you're looking through your phone, you see them. And so it can, it can do that in two different ways. One, it can put things there that are not there in reality. So like an example of that that my kids love to do on the phone is you can, you can pet a dinosaur, right? There can be a dinosaur standing next to you in this picture. The dinosaur's like something is there that's not really there, right? It, in that situation, it is distorting reality. That's not re what reality actually is. It's making it something that it's not. But there's another use of augmented reality that gives clarity to reality, that gives information about reality that you can't see with your own eyes. And so there's other apps that if you're out walking around in, uh, in a city and you don't know where to go, you can hold your phone up or there's a building you don't know anything about, you can hold your phone up and on your screen next to the building, there'll be bubbles of information, right, about the building, details about maybe when the building was built, how long it's been there, how tall it is, right, who occupies the building. You can have directions on your screen that will tell you where to go and how to get there and what turns to take. Now, none of those things are actually there in reality, but the augmented reality is giving clarity to reality. It's helping you understand what is actually there. Now, that's what worldviews do for us. They can either distort reality or they can give clarity to what's actually there. A biblical worldview helps us see what's actually there. Right? It reveals how God works in the world. Things we may not be able to see if left to our own wisdom or to our own understanding. But passages like this pull back the veil. They give us details, help us understand how God operates 
and the world and then therefore teaches us to trust him more as we see more and more of the world the way that God sees it, as we see how God operates in the world. So my prayer is that this passage will deepen our biblical worldview, that it will help us to cast aside other false worldviews, that we will live inside the reality of the biblical worldview. And so my prayer is that when we wrap up this morning, we will in fact see why this passage matters because we'll see how it shapes our worldview and by increasing our love and affection for Jesus and teaches us of the what I simply want to do is work through this passage by answering three basic questions about this passage and then as we uh, wrap up understanding what's there and answering these questions I want us to then look at well why does it matter right why why, why does this matter for our lives today and in the weeks to come so so let's work through these three questions be sure we understand what is here and then we'll do some application work about why this matters for our day-to-day -day lives. So here are the three questions we're going to work through, just factual questions as we work through this passage. Number one, who is Melchizedek? Right? Who is this guy? There's a lot about him in Hebrews. Let's understand who he is. So who is Melchizedek? Number two, why is Melchizedek significant? And then number three, is Melchizedek's priesthood legitimate? Is his priesthood legitimate? Now, you're going to understand why these questions matter as we work through them. But let's just, let's start at the beginning. Who is Melchizedek? Well, look there again with me at chapter 7, verse 1, and then the very beginning portion of verse 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him... Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, why in the world is the author of Hebrews talking about this Melchizedek guy? Well, earlier in chapter 5 of Hebrews, uh, uh, verse 6, the, uh, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is what we would call a messianic psalm. It is about the Messiah who is to come. And Psalm 110 is building up this uh, Messiah who is to come. He will have a mighty scepter. He's going to be a king who rules over his enemies. And in the midst of Psalm 110, verse 4 says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Psalm 110 is the only other time in the Old Testament that Melchizedek is mentioned. Genesis 14 Psalm 110. And so the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110. He's, he's saying that it's talking about Jesus when it says he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he brought it up again at the end of chapter 6 when we finished that up a few weeks ago where it says, uh, chapter 6 verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So who is this guy? Who is this priest that, that Jesus is after the order of him, after the order of Melchizedek? Well, verse 10 tells us that, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that this Melchizedek is who Abraham met when he was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds intriguing, right? <laughs> what, is, what is the slaughter of the kings, right? It sounds like something that would be on a, a medieval show, right? What in the world is this talking about? Well, 
In Genesis chapter 13, we have uh, uh, the, if, if you grew up in church, you, you learned about this in some of your children's Bible stories. Abraham and Lot come to a point where the land can't handle both of their people all together, so they have to split up. So in Genesis 13, Abraham essentially tells Lot, you, you pick where you want to go. Lot looks to the east. He says, I want to go that way toward the east, and that's where the land of Sodom was. And so Lot heads to the east. Abraham settles in Canaan. They divide up. That's how uh, chapter 13 of Genesis concludes. And then Genesis chapter 14, we start learning about this, this group of kings. There's this, this group of four kings led by this guy with a really long name that I know I'm not saying right, but Cheddar Laomer, okay? I, I preached through Genesis, by the way, a few years back. And when I preached on Genesis 14, having to say that name like uh, 50 times in the sermon was very difficult. So uh, we'll call him Chetty. How about that, okay? So, so, uh, so he's the, the head of this group of, of uh, four kings, and, and they are ravaging the land, right? They're having victory everywhere. Nobody can stand up to them. And so then a, a group of, uh, of, so that's a group of four kings, and then a group of five kings gathers together to wage war on this group of four kings. And among that group of five kings is the king of Sodom, which we just heard about right in the previous chapter, because that's where Lot Abraham's nephew went to live. And so they, they go do battle against Chedorlaomer and this group of four kings, and, and they can't stand up to them. The four kings defeat the five kings. They, they wipe them out. And not only do they wipe them out, they, they t- basically take everything from them. And so including Lot. So this group of four kings takes Abraham's nephew. He takes Lot, takes all of Lot's stuff, and they, they kidnap them and they take them away. Well, someone escapes from that uh, defeat and finds Abraham, who's at the time, his name is Abram. And they come and say, look, this, this group of four kings just took your nephew and his family and all his possessions. We, we thought you'd want to know. And so Genesis chapter 14 tells us that Abraham gathers up his trained men. Now, this is fascinating, right? We haven't, we've only been introduced to Abraham a few chapters before, and, but now apparently God has blessed him in such a way to where he has this group of trained men, 318 guys that he gathers up and he says, let's go do work. And they go, right? Abraham and 318 men go to rescue Lot who had been captured by this alliance of four kings who had been wiping out everybody in the region. And Abraham takes these 318 guys and a fair description of it is given to us by the divinely inspired author in Hebrews 7. It says Abraham's encounter them with them was a slaughter of the kings, right? That's what went down. Abraham took these dudes out, right? He slaughtered the kings. It was an overwhelming victory, right? It was almost as bad as Georgia beat my Gamecocks yesterday, right? It was a slaughter is what happened, okay? He just absolutely wiped them out. He rescues Lot, brings everything back that they took, including all the women, all the goods. It all comes back. Everyone is safe, the children and everybody. And as Abraham is returning from that slaughter of the kings in Genesis 14, the king of Sodom comes, and then with the king of Sodom comes this guy 
whose name is Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And we saw earlier that when that happens, it says he comes, Melchizedek, with the king of Sodom. He is, Melchizedek is king of Salem. He brings out bread and wine. And then it's almost a parenthetical comment in Genesis 14. It says, he was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blesses Abram and says, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So out of nowhere, like this guy is not mentioned anywhere in the list earlier of the kings who went to battle. He's not listed earlier in Genesis chapter 14 when it lists the five kings and the four kings. And out of nowhere in the narrative, out of nowhere in the story, shows up Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Now what's fascinating is that as Genesis 14 carries on, the king of Sodom basically wants to pay Abraham for what he's done, right? He's, he's rescued his people. And so the king of Sodom wants to compensate Abraham for what he's done. And he says, look, Abraham, look, Abram, I want you to keep, just keep it all, right? You, you've earned it. And Abraham says, no, no, no. I don't want anyone to say that the reason I have what I have is because it was given to me by you. Right? He doesn't want to take any glory from God. And so he refuses to accept payment from the king of Sodom. Right? So all the kings are trying to pay Abram for what he did. Abraham won't take it. But, but Abram's willing to, to pay Melchizedek. Right? He tithes to Melchizedek, which means he gives 10% of everything that he has. And so that will become significant later that he was willing to do that, even though he wasn't willing to accept anything from the king of Sodom. And Abraham pays him the tithe, and then we never see or hear from Melchizedek again, ever, in the rest of the Old Testament, until... We get to Psalm 110, the Messianic Psalm, where it says that this Messiah who is to come would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, this God that's mentioned in four verses in Genesis chapter 14, who came out of nowhere and leaves, and you never hear him mentioned again. So how can this guy be this important? Right, what is it about, so that's who he is, now let's look at the second question. Why is he significant, right? Why does the divinely inspired author of Hebrews see something in Genesis 14 that you or I and our own human wisdom left to ourselves probably would not have seen? What, what does he see happening in Genesis 14, right? This is like we're getting to do a Bible study of Genesis 14 with the author of Hebrews. And so he tells us exactly what he sees in verses 2 and 3. So let's look here together and let's answer the question, why is Melchizedek significant? So there, uh, and the, just past the beginning of verse 2, uh, the author of Hebrews says, he is first talking about Melchizedek. He is first by translation of his name, 
king of righteousness. So what he is saying is, first of all, what you need to realize is the name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. That's what the translation of the word Melchizedek means. And so the author is saying to us, look, look, just even look at what his name is. He's called the king of righteousness. This guy that comes out of nowhere is a king of righteousness by translation of his name. But not only that, not only that, he's also king of Salem. And the word Salem means peace which means he's a king of righteousness and he's a king of peace. And remember, Psalm 110.4 says that this Messiah who is going to come is going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now we know, well, Melchizedek is not only a priest, he's also king of righteousness and king of peace. But not, not only that, look at, Verse 3, it says, this Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, that's really interesting. Now, the author of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek was created ex nihilo, right? Out of nothing. Like, that, that's not... Don't read that into it. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's not saying that Melchizedek literally didn't have a father or mother. What he's saying is that in the Old Testament, there is no record of his father or mother or his genealogy. And the reason that's significant is because just about everybody and their mother, they have a genealogy, right? Just 14 chapters into Genesis, you've already have chapter five full of genealogy, chapter 10 full of genealogy, part of chapter 11 full of genealogy. If you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, and I hope that you have, you have run into walls of chapters of genealogy in the Old Testament, right? It's all over the place. It's really important, right? It's there for a reason. And so for this significant figure, this Melchizedek, to not have a genealogy, to not have a listing of a mother or father is odd. It's really strange. And it's even more strange because as you get into the Old Testament, when God gives the law, you realize that in order to be a priest, you had to be descended from Levi, right? By law, you could not be a priest if you were not of the tribe of Levi. And they were strict about it so that, for example, when you get to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, and uh, the people have been in exile in Babylon and, and through God's sovereign workings, some of them are allowed to return and they're beginning to, to resettle Israel, right? They're, they're resettling Jerusalem and they're getting to work. And there's this, this group of guys in Nehemiah chapter 7. They know that they're descended from Levi, right? They know that they're priests and they show up and they're ready to go to work as priests, but they come and, and they're there and they come to register themselves. They had to register themselves. And there's no physical record of their descent. There's no genealogy. They can't prove that they're from the tribe of Levi. Even though they know who their parents are and their grandparents are, it's not written down. They can't prove it. And so guess what? They can't serve. 
they can't be a priest because they couldn't prove their genealogy. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 64 says, they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean because they could not prove in writing their genealogy that they were in fact from the tribe of Levi. Yet, You've got this random dude in Genesis 14 that shows up out of nowhere, proving nothing with his genealogy, and he is priest of the Most High God that Abraham pays a tithe to and, and who blesses Abraham, right? And so the author's looking at that, and he's saying, this makes no sense. What in the world is going on here? He doesn't have a genealogy. He's not from the tribe of Levi. Who is this guy? So that's why he mentions that he has no mother, no father, no genealogy. But then he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Again, he is not saying that Melchizedek is eternal, that he is an immortal figure, that he is divine or supernatural. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he has no right. If you watch superhero movies, Melchizedek doesn't have an origin story, right? He comes from nowhere. You don't know where he came from. You don't know where he ended up. He just shows up and then he's gone, right? That's what he's saying. He had no beginning. He has no end in the story. He's just this guy who comes out of nowhere with no story of his birth, no story of his death. And therefore, in the text, in the narrative... The author of Hebrews says he resembles the Son of God because he continues a priest forever. Meaning the priestly line in Melchizedek never came to an end. There's never a cutoff point. There's not a clear beginning. There's not a clear end. The priestly line in Melchizedek just always has been. Is how it feels from reading the text. And that's what the author of Hebrews sees as he reads the text. Hebrews quotes when he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not that Melchizedek lived forever, but that his line, the, the priestly line of which Melchizedek is a part, endures. It's still around And so the author of Hebrews wants you to see the connections in the text to the priest Melchizedek and Jesus, our great high priest. That just as Melchizedek is king of righteousness, Jesus is the king of righteousness, right? He is without spot or wrinkle or any flaw. He is the righteous judge. He is perfect in every sense of the word. He is the one who came and took on flesh and lived a spotless, righteous life. Never for one moment did the son fail to obey the father, right? He is the king of righteousness. And in his grace to us, when we trust in Christ, he imputes that righteousness to us, which means he gives us his righteous life out of the own gracious will of himself through faith in Christ, right? We are then in the last day, we will be judged by the righteous life of our king of righteousness. Jesus is, as Melchizedek's name indicated, Jesus is the great king of righteousness. He is also the king of peace. Even as Ephesians 2.14 says of Jesus, he himself is our peace. 
He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He has no beginning of days. He has no end of days. You see, we desperately need a high priest that can intercede on our behalf because we cannot come before the presence of God in our brokenness and in our sinfulness and in our rebellion against him. And yet, Hebrews chapter 6, at the, those last two verses that we saw a few weeks ago, tells us that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Oh, that's where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. How was he able to do that? Because he is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Melchizedek is the only thing that makes sense of Jesus being our high priest. He is our king, and, and, and listen, the New Testament authors go to great lengths to prove the genealogy of Jesus, to prove that he is the king descended from David from the tribe of Judah. The king will come from the tribe of Judah. The king, the promised one, will come from the line of David. And Matthew's gospel goes to great lengths to show you the genealogy that connects Jesus to David and to Judah. And that's how he's king, but how in the world is he priest? He's priest because of the priestly line of Melchizedek. And so it's really good news that Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. It's what makes sense of Jesus being our king and also the high priest that we desperately need. So look, thousands of years before Jesus came to earth, God sent this king, this guy named Melchizedek to meet Abraham out of nowhere to show us something about Jesus. And the author wants to go to great lengths to show us that this priestly line in Melchizedek is a legitimate priestly line. Right? So what if the author says he's a priest? Does that mean it's a legitimate line of priests? There's other guys that have borne the title of priest in the Bible, but they were right, not true priests. They were priests that random people assigned to make a priest, and they should have never been a priest. So, so is Melchizedek a legitimate priest? Well, let's answer this final question because the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to answer the question. And he answers it almost immediately in verse 4. You see what he says? See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. That word see is how the ESV renders it there at the beginning of verse 4. Uh, I, I believe the King James renders it consider. Some translations render it observe. I love that sense of consider, observe, because it is a command. Verse 4, that first word, see, observe, consider. We are being commanded to look closely at just how great this man was, right? The greatness of Melchizedek proves the legitimacy of his priesthood. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews is making here, right? See how great he was? And then he goes on to prove it. Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils to this man. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, the author of Hebrews reaches back into the Old Testament law and he, he clarifies in verse 5, he says, look, the only people that have the authority to collect tithes that should be collecting money, that should be collecting tithes from God's people. 
And yet you have Abraham giving a tie to this random Gentile, this king of Salem. Why in the world is Abraham, the great patriarch, given money, right, tithing to Melchizedek? That, that's the whole point that's being made here. It should only go, according to the law, to the Levites. But chapter 7 of Hebrews verse 6 says, But this man, talking about Melchizedek, this man who does not have his descent from them, from the Levites, received, received tithes from Abraham. So it's saying, look, here's evidence number one that Melchizedek was, in fact, a great high priest. Abraham himself was willing to tithe to him. The great patriarch Abraham gave this man a tenth of everything. That in and of itself, the author is saying to you and I, legitimizes the priesthood of Melchizedek. But not only that, it says that Melchizedek, second half of verse 6, blessed him who had the promises. In verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So you have Abraham, the great patriarch to whom the promises had come, right? God comes to Abraham. He says, look, Abraham, I know you're, you're childless right now, but I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, you, you, you are going to have descendants that are more than the stars in the sky, right? They're going to be uncountable number of descendants. And look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. And if anybody blesses you, I'm going to bless them. If anybody curses you, I'm going to curse them. It's from you, Abraham. I'm going to create a people for the glory of my name, right? This is the greatness of Abraham in the biblical narrative. And yet... He's blessed by Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews says, look, it's without question, as great as Abraham was, Melchizedek is superior to him. In other words, he's not just a random everyday dude that shows up. He is the legitimate priest of the Most High God, of Yahweh, of the creator of the universe. And though we know nothing about him, we know all we need to know about him because Abraham gave him a tenth of everything and because he blessed Abraham. And because of that, it is beyond dispute that he is superior. And then the author of Hebrews goes on in verses 8, 9, and 10 to say, look, in the case of the Levites, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, meaning we never see the death of Melchizedek, and they pay tithes to him. And then he makes this kind of speculative argument in verses 9 and 10, which is why it says, one might even say, one, some translations render it, one perhaps might say, and what it's saying is, look, out of Abraham would come eventually the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That they're his descendants. From future, Levi being one of the tribes, they're saying, look, you could almost say that the tribe to whom future tithes were paid because they were kind of in Abraham, like in his DNA, right, in his loins, they paid a tithe to Melchizedek, right? They were there through him paying a tithe to Melchizedek. This is just how great Melchizedek is. The whole tribe of Levi, to whom tithes were paid, paid tithes to him through Abraham. This Melchizedek is the great priest of the Most High God, right? He is a legitimate high priest. He is the great one. And it is in his priestly line, this great superior priestly line, that Jesus Christ comes.
And this is how Jesus is both the promised king and lion from the tribe of Judah and the great high priest all at the very same time. Now, let's bring this, let's bring this all together this morning and try to just conclude with some thoughts of applications of, of why this matters for your life today. Because, look, I know, because uh, every Sunday I know it's the case, that, that we all come into this room with all kinds of burdens and struggles and weights of life upon us and trials and tribulations and uh, even grief, right? And so, so we gather every week and we desperately come wanting to hear encouragement and truth from God's word that can get us through the difficult days ahead. And right, it's, it's tempting after a passage like this to read it and think, well, I'm leaving with nothing more than some facts about this obscure, non, uh, uh, obscure guy named Melchizedek, right? How's that going to help me with my grief, right? How's it going to help me with my trials that I know I'm going to face this week? How's it going to help me be faithful tomorrow when the temptations come my way? Well, let's Let's pull on these threads for a minute, and I think you'll leave here, here knowing that God is infinitely merciful and patient and kind toward you, and that it is revealed, in fact, in this passage. Because, listen, from the very first moments of man's rebellion against God, right, we, we see it in Genesis chapter 3. The, the serpent's in the garden who is Satan and he whispers words of temptation into Eve's ear and she listens to the serpent instead of listening to God. And so she, as Adam stood there right with her, joining with her in her sin and rebellion, they rebel against God together and they eat of the forbidden fruit, right? They rebel against God and all mankind falls with them and the world falls into sinful chaos and darkness. But almost immediately, right, Immediately, God is at work telling the story of redemption. Because redemption wasn't plan B. It's not something God had to come up with at the last minute because he didn't know the fall was going to happen. No, it was all part of God's plan to bring glory to his name and glory to the ma majesty of the name of Jesus Christ. And so almost from the very moment that it happens, the story begins to be told of how God is going to redeem the world. And so God comes and he pronounces the punishment and curses on Adam and Eve, but he also pronounces it over the serpent, over Satan. And when he speaks to Satan in Genesis 3.15, he says, look, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Eve, you're, you're going to, it's going to bruise your heel, but he is going to crush your head, Satan. He's going to crush your head. That promised seed is going to undo you. He's going to be victorious over you. You will not have the last word. And then the story of redemption slowly unfolds throughout the rest of the Bible. And you see page after page of God's faithfulness of preserving and carrying on this promised seed that he would keep Every step of the way is God revealing more and more of his glory and his faithfulness and keeping his promise that he made in Genesis 3.15 and the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and on and on and on. And you see, what I want you to see is that from the first moment of rebellion, God knew, God knew that he needed to get Abraham in the path of Melchizedek. 
and God was sovereign over Chedorlaomer and the, and the four other king, uh, three other kings. He's sovereign over the battle of the five kings that were defeated by them. He was sovereign over their kidnapping Lot and taking him away because God needed it to happen. And Abraham went, he's sovereign over Abraham's rescue of Lot so that on Abraham's return, he can run into Melchizedek, right? He orchestrates all of it to display the glories and the greatness and the majesty and the righteousness and the king of peace. He who is without beginning or end, our great high priest, Jesus Christ in the person of Melchizedek. So what I want to say to you, look, is if God can orchestrate all of that to teach us something about Jesus, right? If he can orchestrate battles and wars and kidnappings and the movement of nations and kings then he can orchestrate your life. He's sovereign over it. And I'm reminded of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, which says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right, and it's so easy to read that in passing, but, but if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Right, and I would add to Romans 8, 32, he who, he who orchestrated all of history to bring the promised seed, to bring a God like Melchizedek from out of nowhere, to make him the king of righteousness by translation of his name, to make him king over a place that was translated peace, right? To give him no genealogy in the biblical record so that we can understand something more about Jesus, so that we can see Jesus as our great high priest, right? He who orchestrates all of history, he who is sovereign behind every event, whether we see it or not, he who did all of that, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? You see, that's what a passage like this ought to remind us of this morning. Right? He's sovereign over history. And that fact is proven through the biblical record. And we have no reason to question him. The God who orchestrates history to bring his promised seed into this world as the rightful king and legitimate great high priest is the God who is for us through the death of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, when you're struggling this week, when you're questioning maybe God's faithfulness because you're going through a difficult trial, just remember all that God has done to accomplish your redemption to deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Melchizedek is just one small part of the story, but it is a glorious part of the story. And there is much we can learn from it about God's faithfulness and about the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the powerful truth of your word. Father, I'm just in awe of what is contained in your word. The, 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 the mountain of treasure that is here is beyond our imagination. And so, Father, I'm thankful for the divinely inspired author of Hebrews that gives us a glimpse into just the depths of 
understanding that is there in the Old Testament for our study, for our joy, for our being built up and our faith in you and trust in your steadfast faithfulness. And so, Father, I pray that we would be instructed this morning to be serious students of your word and that it would help us, that you would, that you would help us to see more and more of the glories of Jesus Christ on display in the Old Testament. But Father, more than anything, I pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness on display for how you have faithfully uh, brought your promises to pass. You, you've not let one word of your promises fall to the ground, but they have all come to pass. And all of your promises are yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning, that we would leave here changed by the truth of your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.